Hello, everyone, and welcome to the I Degree Minds podcast in 2022. Firstly, we hope you all had a really great Christmas period, um, whether or not you celebrate Christmas and that you're feeling rested and ready for the year ahead. Today, I'm joined by Shirin, and we're both really excited to be back working on the podcast. So, Shirin, how are you? How was your break? It was great. It was, yeah, it was really nice. I actually managed to catch up on some reading. I'm quite like I have quite a bad habit of um, reading multiple books on the go at the same time. So I'm currently reading um, The Most Important Thing by Howard Marks to kind of get my brain around what a thoughtful investor must look like. So it's not quite ESG focused per se, but I'm definitely in the camp of people that believes that sustainable change needs to also be financially viable. Um, hence why I'm doing this master's. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an important read. Um, and then also I'm reading a book called A World of Three Zeros by my all time favorite human, Muhammad Yunus. And he talks about his experience in building up microfinance and patient capital really all over the world um, and looks to try and figure out how this and economic tools in general can lead the world to zero poverty, zero unemployment and net zero. So yeah, fun reads. Did you get any books on do you Yeah, well, they do. They do sound like two super interesting reads. So I'd be keen to borrow them actually from you once you're finished with them. If that's okay. Honestly, only if you appreciate super highlighted books that have tons of notes scribbled across the margins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds good because then I don't have to do thinking. I can just steal all of your notes, so that works for me. Um, but yeah, my brother got me um, the prize by Daniel Jurgen, which. Is it's really an amazing account of the birth, the rise, and the dominance of the modern oil industry. It was recommended by Laurent Segalin, who was we had on the podcast last semester, and he really recommended it and said that in order to understand the current energy transition that we're kind of really just at the start of now, you need to understand what drove the transitions that have happened in the past. So I thought over the Christmas period is a perfect time to get stuck into something meaty like that. And the book is, yeah, it's incredibly detailed. It's, um, it is about the technology and about the kind of science of, of how people found oil and refined it into useful products and all the rest of it. But it's also really about, um, the kind of personalities that form the, in, the industry, which I really enjoy. You, you get a real sense of the entrepreneurial spirit, spirit, the kind of chaotic wild west start to the oil industry. So it's, yeah, it's a really good book. It is, it is, and it's very detailed. It's dense. It's 770 pages with probably about 600 words on each page, which may sound like a bit of a slog, but it's actually really well written. So it doesn't feel like, um, so much of a chore just yet. I'm actually still getting through it without having to force myself. So yeah, it, it was, it's, that's going really well. I had a nice break. I don't really feel as rested as I thought I would, but I, yeah, I kind of wonder if that will ever really be the case. And I'm really excited about having some more guests on the podcast. Yeah, speaking of which, we're about to speak to Cornelia Gomez. So she's currently the head of ESG at PAI Partners, which is a French PE fund, which is focused on four main verticals, business services, food and consumer, general industry and healthcare. And it has just over 17 billion euros in asset fund management. They were also, interestingly, one of the early adopters of ESG into their investment pipeline and their investment process as a whole. And we're super lucky to have had Cornelia come into Imperial and just speak to our cohort about her work. So, yeah, I think both of us were really impressed by her 
candid approach to ESG. So I'm really excited to have her on. Yeah, she was, I'd echo that, she was very genuine and we could immediately see that she was not the type of ESG person that spoke about it in a very fluffy and tangible feel-good sense. She was really hammering home the points about data and materiality and, and bringing ESG into the real world to have actionable insights and actually make a real difference, um, which I think we were both impressed by. So we wanted to get her on the podcast and follow up um, with a few of the themes that she touched on briefly in that talk to our cohort. Yeah, I really want to deep dive into the world of PE and sustainability with her, especially because 2021 brought lots of heated discussions around whether ESG can really be impactful within the finance space, particularly with the likes of the Secret Diary of a Sustainable Investor and then the plethora of FT articles and LinkedIn thought pieces that ensued from that. I wanted to understand of how ESG is woven into the PE investment pipeline, particularly when investors' time horizons within that space is necessarily shorter. And I'm also really intrigued to peer behind the curtain to understand what sustainable investing looks like and what key trends are in store for us for 2022. Yeah, I'm also interested in, in talking to her about emerging trends. One of the things that she spoke about to us was looking ahead of the curve and particularly at things like natural capital and biodiversity. Um, so I'd like to ask her about about those issues. And there's been a lot more discussion about those issues um, in the last or well, certainly in the last year, which is amazing. But to me, and this obviously has to be caveated with the limited exposure that I've had in this space, but I'm not really aware of so many tangible examples of where things like biodiversity um, have been worked into a private equity setting, both in terms of like a, how do you not damage biodiversity, but how do you value it and create value from protecting biodiversity in companies? So, yeah, I'd like to ask her really about how she and the industry are working to measure, manage and kind of derive value from maintaining and building natural capital um, and particularly diving into the kind of materiality side of things. Where do you get the data from? How do you measure data points in order to get to real actions uh, and real insights? So, yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, I think this is going to be a great meaty discussion. So yeah, with that, let's welcome Cornelia to the podcast. Hi, Cornelia. Welcome to the podcast and um, Happy New Year. I was wondering if we could start at kind of the beginning of your career, almost because when you came and spoke to us, it was just really incredible how you'd kind of moved from your focus of sustainability and supply chains towards the nexus of sustainability and finance. And so, yeah, could you just let us into your world a little bit? Sure. Let's take the let's go down the memory lane uh, together. Uh, it's been it's been 12 years, which, uh, you know, in ESG, uh, in normal years are 12, but in ESG years are like you know, 30. Um, so, you know, my calling was always uh, primarily really was my calling was primarily social, like everybody like you guys, but also probably everybody on your on your masters today. I felt the same um, feeling of responsibility and urge to do something and just you know, give back uh, the immense amount of, you know, privilege and the knowledge that I and uh, yeah just simply privilege I was given and at the time when you wanted to do that back in you know uh, 2000 uh, uh, by back in 2010 um, you didn't have really any specialized curriculum uh, so on climate unless you wanted to be an engineer 
uh, I absolutely had no idea how to become an engineer. So I did a business school, uh, learned about very, you know, uh, markets, finance, M&A, um, marketing, um, really how to sell stuff uh, the best way possible, the quickest way possible, um, lead time, quality, etc. But I, uh, I, I knew I wanted to get in and on board the train, on board the CSR sustainability train as, as soon as possible. And that opportunity came after a, a stint in, in a strategic consulting. That opportunity came um, in a corporate context because at the time, the only place you could find a job, uh, however junior it was, was in the, was in actually a corporate uh, background. So uh, Casino Group, um, a French-based uh, but international uh, food and non-food retail company. So think, you know, Sainsbury's, Mark Spencer's or Walmart, one of their competitors. I was based out of Hong Kong and was in charge of social compliance. So that meant essentially post post, you know, Adidas um, and Mattel scandals. It meant, you know, visiting factories in China, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, focusing on social compliance. So um, the the respect or compliance with social labor, local social labor law and ILO conventions. That's very important because at the time, the only elements of environment that you would find in a 250 questions long questionnaire for a factory in Bangladesh was the was wastewater uh, treatment and pollution. There was no, I, I mean, no reference whatsoever to the idea of carbon footprint, um, climate change, life cycle analysis, end to end or cradle. So there was a little, there were, there were, you were starting to hear about cradle to gradle, those kind of concepts, but they were not really embedded in uh, the day to day of, you know, consumer goods manufacturing and supply chain, over, overlooking supply chains. And after a while, and I was, you know, did that for five years, uh, incredibly, well, you know, I faced on the field because that was basically field, field work. Some incredibly um, complex uh, situations. I was, you know, very small. A lot of lot of small failures, big successes. I mean, the day to day of an ESG sustainability professional. And at the time, just to give you a little bit of perspective, at the time we're talking 2012, it was it was a challenge to convince merchandising teams, sourcing teams of the importance of looking into base, basic modern slavery risks. So child labor, paper retention, um, overtime. And when I say overtime on a Chinese, um, on a China labor law, I don't mean, you know, it's 48 plus 12. I don't mean plus 12. I mean, I, I found situations in toys factory where workers would work up to 110 hours a week on some season. So that, that's how, that's what I'm talking about, about overtime. And it's really, it became an, it became really obvious that everything starts with obviously the top. Everybody says that, but it's so so important to give or to hand to the operational teams on the ground. So merchandising, sourcing, people who actually go to factories, quality auditors, the tools to actually do this extra to go the extra mile, and just because nobody really wants to source from a factory that employs kids, okay? But sometimes they just don't know their kids or uh, they're under massive pressure to um, deliver minimum of uh, quantities for the you know, Valentine's Day, for underwear, um, from a certain supplier uh, with a very short lead time, and it has to go through fright, and I don't have a choice. 
And you really, your job or my job at the time was to say, there's an alternative that is not going to cost you more than X percent. And, um, or the risk is so high that it's an absolute no-go to go to, to source from the supplier. I think everything I learned there applies to what I'm going to tell you about today for ESG uh, integration in private equity. It's always operational actors that need to be incentivized positively and ne- negatively. So the carrot and stick on doing the job, not just well and the definition of their job description, but just, but better uh, and really thinking about holistically about the impact of their day-to-day job. Also giving back a little bit of agency to those people. Like they, again, you know, they're, no, they're not robots. The workers I've met in factory were not robots. The directors, the factory directors in Bangladesh were not robots. You have good people, bad people, but mostly the majority are just in the middle and just don't know what to do. So, yeah, that's after a while I got, yeah, I felt I wanted to, I felt, I, I felt limited uh, by, you know, a, the function. And I think that that will maybe speak to a lot of people on this podcast, but as, as a sustainability professional, you are on the sideline. Uh, you're, you're cheering for the team, really uh, trying to steer them in the right way. But you're never really in the center of the reactor or very rarely, unless you actually work for an impact, for example. So uh, I wanted, I wanted to be on the playing for the, playing on the on the field. I uh, did that for one year. Turns out I'm a terrible salesperson. So uh, <laughs> in the end, that didn't work. But it's always good to try. It's important to know what you're good at and not good at doing. Uh, and I found my way uh, quite, you know, pure serendipity, but find my way uh, to private equity. Joined PI Partners in 2017. So some five years ago. And um At the time, what I liked about it is that doing ESG in a traditional large cap private equity firm was as pioneering as doing social compliance uh, and environmental compliance uh, in factories in Bangladesh and China for a consumer goods uh, company. And that's what I've always liked doing. Um, I feel this is what I'm I'm good at. So I embraced that challenge. And uh, yeah, here we are, you know, four and a half, five years down the line. Um, actually, um, my last few days at PEI, it's been an incredible journey. Fantastic. I've seen, you know, I've witnessed fantastic change and progress in the, in my function, in my work with my colleagues. And I'm actually, uh, gearing up for a new, uh, a new challenge, uh, which is I'm joining a growth equity fund that's uh, mostly invests in tech. So I would, and it's a U.S. fund. So that's what I would call a triple far west. Uh, for ESG, so US uh, growth equity and tech. So this is where I am today. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And I'm, I'm, if we've got time at the end, I would like to ask you about your new role and see what you perceive to be different about um, going into growth equity as opposed to private equity. But I wanted to ask you before that, um, you kind of alluded to having, uh, I guess, a sense of responsibility to have an impact. Did that come, has you have, have you given, have you always had that or did that come from a single kind of aha moment or a moment of realization but I'd, I'd love to you know to date back my 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 passion and my career choices to you know moment when I was eight and you know swimming into plastic but but the truth is <laughs> the truth is it's it's always been there uh, very much uh, 
in my core, I remember as far as I can remember, I was collecting, uh, I was you know, cutting out. I was at the time we had newspapers, guys. <laughs> I don't know if I'm kidding. It's still newspapers, but there were more of them at the time. And I would, uh, I would, I, you know, I found some little notebooks where I was cutting out articles about, you know, uh, genocide in Rwanda because you know, I was, I was, you know, capable of reading at the time it was happening or, um, uh, articles from, you know, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, uh, and, um, um, disappearing endangered endangered gorillas in 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 Africa, and I always thought this was so so important, and and I felt I feel I feel I think the first the most important feeling I had at the time, and I can really put words on it, was a feeling of mm, inadequacy or a bit of revolt or not necessarily rebellion. I I absolutely have never sided with this uh, view that you should be angry about things or revolted about things or that there's a the solution, and I, I, I welcome the, I welcome the work of, you know, more angry NGOs. I understand why they do that, but it's never been how I've seen it. In my view, I, I'm a strong believer of changing things on the inside, uh, probably because having coming from an extremely privileged, you know, background, and uh, it's just, it just felt, um, I just felt that I had been given the the right tools to do that. Um, and that it wouldn't, it would be as not necessarily more impactful, but it would have its own impact, and it's, you know, it's a sufficient impact at least. It comes with, you know, it also it comes with a burden is that you will. I'm always evolving around people who don't understand what I'm doing or don't really believe in what I'm doing, and it's a constant negotiation with people around me. Um, that has changed, obviously. The conversation has obviously shifted and changed in the last few years. But for a while, it felt like I was plowing a long, quite a lonely furrow. Um, but that never deterred me. I think in terms of maybe once you, once you decide that this is how you feel and you feel that the things, the way things are, are not okay. It's not okay that, you know, the world's riches and the world's food and the, the world's, uh, the comforts are in the hand of so few, so few people and that it's just undeserved. If you decide that, if this is your view and you decide to do something about it, you start working on it, reading about it. And I did have a lot of micro haha moments later. So just one of them typically is when I was in a, reminding me of that when I was telling you about Bangladesh, when I was in Bangladesh, you know, at the time I was, you know, obviously you you grow in maturity. And at the time I, I was still trying to understand how, how do you change people's, people's mind or how do you convince a factory director to move his boiler uh, his huge boiler from the entrance of his factory where there's a massive fire hazard and, you know, convince him to stop locking up his workers every day to prevent theft and things like that. And I just, I, you know, I realized as I was asking questions that, for example, um, any TP treatment plan, you know, when, once you see the, the quantity of chemicals that go into clothes in, in the Bangladeshi garment factory, you look out for those treatment plants and you look out for the effluents. And once you find out that this just, a treatment plan that you know prevents you from pouring every day liters of chemical laced uh, water into the drinking water of a population that costs actually a million dollars or half a million to a million dollars depending on its size once you, once i realized that once i realized the price of machines and machinery it made me realize you know the importance of not just coming with your own with your little sustainability hat but but how essential it is to align with the business, with just basic business sense. So, for example, how much do I represent in terms of percentage in your whole 
uh, turnover? Am I 2%? Am I this small French client that represents only 1% and the biggest guy for you is Walmart? So really, you're not going to budge unless Walmart comes. Um, are you, um, are you, can you collaborate? Are you integrated vertically or horizontally? Um, are you, are you collaborating with other factories in your neighboring area? Could you maybe pool money together, build a corporate cooperative and buy an ETP treatment plan? Are you connected with microfinance, uh, um, facilities at the time? Microfinance was just starting. So can, so imagine how fast things have changed, you know, and so on and so forth. And I just, just realized that it's just an ecosystem. It's, it's everything's linked, you know, so you can't, you know, even when you find a child in a factory, that was another big ha moment on a, on a social standpoint, you're like, oh my God, I found, you know, you feel like, you know, Sherlock Holmes and because you finally found that kid that they, they were hiding away, but then so what, you know, so what, you're going to dereference the supplier, you only represent 5% or 10% for him, but the real problem is that this kid is there because his parents uh, come from uh you know, other uh, specific type of factory workers in India or specific type of factory workers in China and just can't do, can't do differently. So unless you find a school, unless you call a local NGO, find a school, find a bus, find a way to get this kid to school, he's going to come back the next day or the parents are going to be uh, fired. So things like that, you know, just again, you have to keep an open mind and consider both the mo- many, many sides of an issue. That's a really interesting, yeah, a really interesting example of how complex these things are it's not you can point to a problem very easily but a solution is much much harder to find it's that's a really good example thank you for that Mm, yeah and I really appreciated your almost like aha moment of saying that you were interested in making the world better but that wasn't necessarily or you felt that wasn't necessarily through the NGO route because I remember reading Dead Aid by Dembisa Moyo and it it really hit me and almost swiveled me around to mm-hmm. look at business as a solution. Um, but yeah, this is kind of a good segue into my next question, which is really when you came and spoke to us, you spoke very concretely about the difference in definition between impact versus sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk about both of those definitions and then perhaps tell us more about the role of PE in engendering greater sustainability sure i think you know when i when i joined uh pei it was very much i mean there were a few heads of esg out there there were definitely no esg teams like most uh, maybe apart from one or two funds out there that had two or three people on their teams and it was interesting because the buzz about so that was 2017 and at the time the buzzword was in materiality because everybody was starting everybody was discovering the Kind of the north face that they would have to climb to actually make, you know, a private equity fund responsible. And then, and so, so everybody obviously was looking for kind of a quick little exit out, which is materiality, you know, let's focus on the essential. And then very quickly, and, and obviously, I'm not, obviously impact investing was exist, pre-existing. Uh, you have some incredible example with, you know, um, so Cohen and, and, and Bridges or, or, or Bamboo Capital or Investissement Partner en France, you had really a many pre-existing uh, companies but but this kind of new impact wave that we're seeing the fact that for example the global impact investor network gin conference when i started had 200 participants and as i'm as i checked on the last virtual conference and even the in-person one thousands of participants now so clearly impact it, the, the the industry can 
looked, swiveled around, looked at impact and said, oh, okay, interesting. And I remember sitting on panels with where they were like, was really a MMA uh, fight, you know, impact versus ESG, you know. Uh, and I thought it was, I, I thought it was, it didn't make any sense because you can't really, comp- you can't really pitch once against the, one against the other. Impact investment is really about generating uh, specific uh, beneficial social and environmental effects with the bonus of and the possibility to also have financial gain, which is extremely attractive to people who used to do basic philanthropy. And that's how basic philanthropy is so, you know, there was, there's such a strong pillar of uh, business doing well in the US and especially in the Anglo-Saxon world. Philanthropy is not such a big thing for companies in France, actually, but philanthropy moved into venture philanthropy and then it kind of split. On one side, you still have venture philanthropy. So Sumerian part. So you have some really great guys doing that and who say, wait a minute, stop saying you will have financial gains and we'll be doing a lot of good. This is not, we're not seeing this in the numbers. So let's be honest. And you have this other branch, which is impact investing and impact investing. I see pure impact investing. So, so very, very clear. So you're looking for extremely clear social and environmental effects. So for example, Uh, thematic funds around green transition on hydrogen, or I'm thinking about one in France. It's a fund called Citizen Capital who has one fund dedicated to entrepreneurs from um, the suburbs. So uh, underprivileged areas in France, and they will only invest there. So as you can see, there's an extremely strong kind of diversity and inclusion um, and nurturing aspect to that. That's one thing. I'm seeing also big traditional funds developing impact um, strategies. I'm less, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'll be frank and I've always been very frank about this. I'm less of a fan uh, because I think that today we are overstretching the notion of impact. And I'm sorry, but a dental clinic in Brazil, a dental clinic chain in Brazil is not impact. Um, uh, and I've had, I've had fiery debates about this with a friend of mine who's currently based in Kenya working in impact strategy, investing in private schools in Kenya. And, you know, he will say, wait, well, that's not true. You middle class, your Uber driver in Kenya, who's like lower middle class, can put his kid in a private school. That's impact. So it's debatable. Um, I just feel that today an SDG mapping is not enough to call yourself an impact investor. Thankfully, we have new methodologies. We have the green taxonomy coming up, SFDR. So if you're Article 9, and have an SDG mapping, and are looking into the impact management framework, and are extremely transparent about the, you know, the, the inevitable negative impact that you, your activity will have. Um, I think, yeah, definitely. I, I just think there should be a little bit more due diligence around this. And article SFDR, this, so sorry for, I'm just assuming that everybody knows what I'm talking about, because it's been my it's been keeping me awake for the last six months, but uh, sustainable financial disclosure regulation <laughs> with our, with a different uh, categorizing of funds. So Article 9 will be uh, will be back. On the other side, sustainability. So that's net positive. On the other side, sustainability is really avoiding net negative uh, impact. Um, and it's for me, if to to say it in a less in a more layman terms, it's really working a traditional working a traditional strategy with working with constraints okay so uh i'm and you won't be at the core of the investment strategy you'll be again on the sideline 
but you will be molding, you'll be basically building a blueprint for doing better, investing better, okay? Responsible investment. You will also be, for me, it's, it's really like, so you have a blueprint. It's like an architect. You lay out the blueprint. You'll say, this is how you can invest more responsibly. This is probably where you should maybe consider to stop investing. Or if you do invest, you absolutely have to put more means, resources, and thinking into it. Then once you once you start investing, you really want to be building that house around around the investments. So really framing the investments, controlling it, looking at risks, pushing, pushing, pushing the underlying investments to do to you know, establish strategy, etc. And then, but at the end of the day, your clients want returns. The number, the two metrics that will be, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pretend that, you know, the key metrics at PI are, you know, uh, the multiple and uh, the rate of return. And, and, and I, I can, I can live with that because I know that over the last four or five years, uh, on this, on the side, not necessarily under, above, but really on the side, we're pushing a conversation on ESG performance, ESG risk, value creation, um, and, and slowly, and that's what's most important is I think sustainable, responsible investment is a, an investment that is just self-aware. You know, it's to say, I, I know exactly who I am. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a big, big, big American fund and I'll keep investing in extractives and, and hopefully I'll stop pretending that, you know, I, I won't write, you know, a letter to my shareholders every year explaining how ESG is super important. I will also recognize that I also have underlying investment in extractives, but I will say how, and I'll show, and I'll say, it's more like show me than tell me. I'll show how I'm slowly, you know, butterfly effect, but slowly changing the directions. So it's long, long, long answer, but that's already probably uh, encroaching into the, the second <clears throat> question. Uh, Shireen, on how do you make sure private, you know, how do you make sure you can go for this limiting net negative in private equity? I think, <clears throat> and if I'm putting myself in the shoes of, you know, the listeners, if, if for example, the listeners are, you know, have two job offers uh, between two funds, it's, I think it's really a question of <clears throat> where you are today. So where you stand today um, in terms of, okay, sectors. Um, but beware of sectors, okay? Because often tech doesn't mean anything. You know, it's tech enabled. So what are you enabling really uh, underneath the tech? So what what lies beneath sectors? You know, really cherry picking uh, a few investments and digging into those investments, looking at the ratings on of you know different themes and supply chain diversity. Um, do they have a CSR report? And really. And that this will tell you where the company is at in terms of mat- the company of the fund, not really it's the same thing in terms of maturity and ambition. I would, I, I think that that will, then you do a gap analysis with what they say. And that gives you, the Delta gives you the amount of bullshit, sorry, but, and greenwashing that goes on. And, and there's a lot of it going on around. Okay. Uh, not, and it's not malicious. Honestly, I, I do want to say that I'm hearing this. I was mentioning earlier, you know, that I'm, I'm surrounded with people who don't necessarily do what I'm doing. And it's extremely tiring, uh, for, to hear that the first immediate kind of, you know, uh, tip of the tongue comment on, on our, on, on our, our jobs on sustainability is, ah, oh, this is greenwashing. It's, it's time to move on. <laughs> it's time to move on, uh, and to, you know, recognize that 
today there's there's sufficient uh, data to data tools social media out there um ng qualitative ngo work um you know shareholder pressure etc to <clears throat> expose quite clearly who's doing what okay um that that once you're done doing like measuring looking at this delta you want to say okay what are they going to do about it what's the ambition i think it's very important not to judge a book on its cover you know if i frankly i'm not I'm not going to speak about my current company but it was pretty much the same for everyone out there <clears throat> five years ago if you were judging the book on the cover uh, you know no uh, code of conduct uh, <clears throat> no you know no no mapping against um and SASB, no no reporting no data points no kpis and that's perfectly fine like i would i would say probably those companies are the most interesting if if and that's a very important if if there's an, a genuine 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 ambition to change something about it and i would say to 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 i don't know if uh, i don't know if it's it's been translated in english but i recommend to anybody out there not only uh, students of your masters but somebody who's looking for a second job work experience or third work experience i really recommend them to use the recruitment rounds as as a highway as a as a two way street like i very often i see of i see profiles of people yeah who want a job that they they just literally uh shut their ears they don't want to hear the weak signals they don't want to hear the little sentence uh, they don't want to hear the fact that they got no answer to the question you know what's what do you really think you know what's your ambition on ESG will you be net zero or are you carbon neutral or um what are you putting in place for do you have paternity leave uh do you have an ESG committee um who do you you know do you have a um a critical friends committee all those quest- all those questions if left unanswered are a really strong indicator that not much is happening i think it's very uh, very important and and thankfully for me and that that really kind of goes back to what you were probably going to ask is that if you if the if you have a, st- a real mandate to integrate ESG the basics is obviously integrate ESG in investment processes if the mandate is clear for multiple reasons often honestly a few years back because our clients the uh, limited partners wanted it but if you have a mandate then yeah go for it because then it's you know we've you know there's sufficient there's so many best practices out there from you know i would say 10 top notch funds who've you know trialed went through all the trial and error of you know integrating ESG investment processes do you you know how do you carry out a due diligence based on what frameworks um how deep do you go do you internalize it do you externalize it with which advisors should you work um how involved should the deal teams be if they're judge and party all those questions you know we'll, you'll get an answer to all those questions as you go after on ownership it's really just about data it's data 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 how integrated is the data to your systems it's about reporting um being connected with the right teams in your company for example an ESG team that has no connection whatsoever with um an operational group or an operational team so for so the guys you always have that in large cap or mid market funds so the guys who take care of top line digital transformation um talent uh, management and uh, management appraisal 
if there are no connections between the two, I would be worried because how on earth are you going to you know, contribute to a value creation plan if you're not working alongside the people who are you know, reviewing logistics or pricing? Yeah. Yeah. My favorite story of yours is how you worked so hard to integrate your team at every level yeah. um, of PAI. Yeah, it just yeah, so physically, uh, physically, and uh, mm. I mean, yeah, it's okay. So uh, there's two elements to the job, you know, uh, as you grow in the in this function. And I did, I when I was back in the time where, because you know, obviously, I, I was only doing operational work. I was, you know, a junior uh, doing operational work, so basically learning, applying, pushing, creating tools, processes, benchmarking, reading things out there. What, what's great with this job is one day you're given. Uh, to the house and you can actually manage your own team. And that's when it gets, in my view, um, fascinating because not only do you um, have the opportunity to indeed place people at different level of seniority within the invest, close to the investment team and to other teams, compliance, investor relations, finance, uh, operational performance, but you, you're also given the opportunity to nurture and really create the next generation of ESG stars, which is, I have to say, my my, my passion, what I, what I probably today love the most about my job. So That's really seeing it. Yeah, I really liked in your previous description of impact versus sustainability as well, the, yeah, the point of not pitching one against the other and the sustainability part really recognizing that um, all the kind of dirtiness that goes on in that space. And because that really does represent the real economy, right? Like just hiding from stuff that doesn't look nice and have an impact isn't going to take the whole real economy in the direction that it needs to go. So yeah, that, that, that resonated with me. And I wanted to then ask specifically more about the kind of pre-acquisition investment stage. So when you're doing that kind of screening. So when I think about ESG, it's got kind of two prongs. You've got the risk mitigation stage where you're using this framework to identify risks and manage risks. And then as you point to the, the kind of value creation stage. So how do they... Mm. So where you're yeah, obviously looking at opportunities to create value. How does how do they play against each other? So, for example, if there's a company that scores poorly in all of these points, but potentially could improve massively in them, how much do you pit that bad score against the potential for value creation and improvement in that in those early stages of, a, of looking at a company? Yeah, I've, I've, and it's 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 a very good question. That, that's where, uh, to be really honest, um, I just want to be really honest in 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 I would say. Real economy slash traditional investment. The, you know, I hear a lot of the question, you know, do you have a veto right? That's a question that comes a lot from LPs. The truth is no. Number two, it's, it's sufficiently complex. An, an investment committee is a sufficiently complex and political organization to an add an, an overlay of ESG. One thing you want to do is not become, and I'm really serious about this because it has happened to me and I'm seeing this happening more and more. You have to be very careful to not let ESG become yet another tool in, in the little political toolbox of someone. Using ESG you know, to block a deal or using ESG to push a deal. And this I've seen, and I've really, really seen a strong shift um, around, around about this. So for example, for years where you know, it was, we were pretty much unheard, then when we came in very strongly with the notion of risk, so legal risk, financial risk, reputational risk. That's where you start to see mentality shifting. Um, it's also, I, I think, a bit more general risk. It's kind of the risk of doing nothing. 
you know, it's this kind of, and, and I'm seeing this a lot with partners or, or uh, very senior figures. And I think that's why it's really when uh, climate becomes a top, uh, a top of the agenda topic at Davos that suddenly, you know, despite all the many, many warnings and presentations you've said beforehand, that's when it becomes suddenly top of mind for some people. And, and I think that's, that's, so, so yeah, you should keep, you know, you, sh- you, now it's become pretty, a pretty cookie, pretty easy approach, pretty cookie cutter to score the risk, as you say. So for example, it can be high, medium, low, or red, orange, green. And often we know enough about assets and sectors and we have enough data today to be granular about the risk and say, okay, on the social part, it's okay. On the environmental part, it's not great. Um, there, there are th- often, to be honest, if you're not investing in a coal mining or thermal coal plant, it's, 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 the risk is not, you know, you don't, you, you're not looking at huge financial risks or on, unless you've really, ha- you're able to prove that the manufacturing plant is located in an area that's incredibly exposed to physical climate risks. It's very difficult to put a number on those risks. So what you'll do is more to say, okay, there, there's all those elements of a good CSR strategy are missing. And this is a risk. Just because we're going to have to be, we're going to need to put some money and some time and some resources in building that CSR strategy in time for the exit. And that's well received. I think to be, to be, and that's well received today. Sometimes, and you know, to answer your question, it's really about, it's really about the willingness of an investment committee to hear you. Um, some, I've, I've, I've found, my, found myself in situations and one actually recently, where the deal was frankly, frankly led to a very um, rich and two weeks long debate because there was an ESG component of that of that deal that was making everybody very uncomfortable. Oddly, or for some, you know, because I because I could align a, a, a sufficient amount of mitigating factors, and because I knew the deal team was going to be doing something about it, and that it would be top of agenda and value creation plan, I was I didn't I didn't. Insist on not doing that deal. On the contrary, I said, if we do all of that, it should work. And we're still, it comes with consequences on your workload because yes, we did do the deal, the deal, and I'm spending now 50% of my, my time on this company for the last two months. There are deals, however, where it's just hard to quantify risk, but it's looming. And I say that it's just like, it's obvious or you have, you have absolute certainty that there's going to be a regulation Keep uh, like a reach, you know, the reach or ROHS regulations, where, for example, this company is using an active ingredient or is producing a specific type of product, often chemical based, <clears throat> say pesticides, for example, where you will be pitting arguments against one another. People don't care in the UK about pesticides, but people care in France and Germany. This active ingredient is going to be the ban in two years of glyphosate. Yeah, but it hasn't been banned yet. And you can go back and forth. And then, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the investment committee makes a decision and they have to live with that decision. And obviously, operationally, the ESG team has to live with the consequences of that decision. And it's just, you know, it's just a question of, you know, if you look, if you look carefully at a company's portfolio, pretty obvious, uh, which way, which way they go. So, Cornelia, you kind of touched on this slightly, but 
the idea of like almost time horizons and time cones. ESG is necessarily something that has very long time horizons. The impacts of climate change are going to be far reaching and they're probably only going to affect at least us in the West in 2050 beyond. How do you, when you're holding companies for between five and 10 years, how does that dichotomy translate and how do you work those two almost opposing timescales into each other well uh, you know one bit at a time <laughs> this is my answer um you're right time is playing against us definitely um sometimes there were times where i wished i was working in an infrastructure fund you know rather than you know uh, uh, consumer goods slash uh, general industrial uh, pharma fund, because in infrastructure you really ha- do have to take into account uh, the you know, climate change or physical risks, and you're you're working on a 10-year, 15-year scale. Um, but at the same time, you can monitor, and we've, you know everybody's talking a lot about climate and environment, but I want to go back to social for a minute. If you if you want to monitor a very good uh, uh, litmus test of how much uh, management cares about the company is, is to look at, at you know, low, lost time, uh, accidentology, the frequency and severity rate of incidents. And interestingly, the best private equity funds out there, and actually most of them, because of just the nature of the risk, most of them infrastructure, monitor the severity, frequency rate of incidents quarterly and not yearly. So you can there you can, and you can you could even go as far as to decide that you want to monitor it monthly at every board meeting and that's what's happening for example for one of our portfolio company where health and safety is a huge risk. So you know you can cut you can slice time up it's like a cake you know you can't make it bigger but you can slice it in as many pieces as you want and really what matters at the end of the day is what the time frame you've given yourself for to com- to complete the goals that you've established at acquisition, and that's the time frame of private equity. And you can say, and it really so. For example, let's take an example: climate change. Of course, is this kind of worryingly long time frame, and that's what obviously makes people, to quote the movie that everybody who cares about ESG has seen, don't look up. You know, it's everybody, everybody not uh, not look up. Yeah. Is that you know they say oh it's going to happen in 40 years or 30 years. But if you say, you know what, fine, I don't care, but you're you're compliant, you're committing to the science-based target on my watch, and you're taking and the the interim target of 2025 is something you will have to meet, and the 2030 target is something that's going to have to be realistic, and we're going to be holding you to that at least for the next five years. You're creating. It's quite a famous, kind of famous phenomenon in, you know, in the, you learn in the economy is like a effet de cliquet. So it's, it's kind of a, it's this, I don't know how you say in English, but it's when you click upwards, you can't really go down anymore. And it's, and that's, that's, that's been my, my weapon, honestly, in the last, you know, 12 years of my career is I've been using this thing all the time. You, you shouldn't push people to overcommit because obviously this is greenwashing and, uh, and they're going to stumble and fall and everybody's going to, everybody's going to, you know, you, you, you'll walk one step forward and five steps back. But if you can, in time, push the company to commit to the right target, say, well, you don't have the right resources to actually implement it. 
So let's hire a consultant, let's hire freelance, let's work with an NGO, let's get you two people in your CSR team. You, uh, you know, let's you know, get them into a, a kind of CSR price or CSR reporting thing, for example, the GRI or soon the ISSB. When you, once you start, for example, reporting on the GRI, I've, I know very, very few companies who've, t- who've taken the brave step of on reporting to the GRI. So when you start reporting to the CDP, you, you, you don't just like say, I'm not going to report to the CDP anymore. You actually start reporting to water and forest. So that's, that's just the only thing you can do really is to make sure that you slice the cake really, really, really small on your watch. Make sure that you get those kind of long term that you can kind of get the long term train forward. It's a bit like curling. You know, you get the, you get, you get it sliding. You won't be there when it will reach its goal. Uh, you will have moved on. Everybody will have moved on. You might have a different CEO by that time, but everybody, you know, we're not, you know, you, you never swim in the same water twice, in the same river twice. Okay. So as you go forward, this, the new CEO, hopefully might have kids like you who are you know, stumping their fist on the table. And unlike me, 10 years ago, will like, will listen to him or to you. You will have, uh, he will have young interns or juniors associates who will be, at, who will be saying, listen, I'm not interested in staying in this company. Nothing's happening. Uh, all those micro phenomena that we're talking about might have, might also help to maintain those goals. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's not, it's a, so as you, <laughs> obviously I'm an optimist as you can, <laughs> otherwise I would not have survived on this job for <laughs> 10 years. I, uh, so obviously it's a very optimistic way of seeing things. Um, you, you can also, I, I'm also very trustful. I, I trust regulation a lot. I, I trust the fact that, you know, co- co- you know, smart people in the right places are seeing, are actually seeing what's happening typically on biodiversity. Just let, if we look at time frame for that biodiversity, planetary boundaries are already well exceeded. Um, for example, extinction of species or as, um, my English is really bad, azot, uh, NH, um, or, thank you. Um, as that, you know, the, what, what's, uh, you, what you find in uh, pork-based uh, uh, production um, in, manif- in agriculture, so that 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 pollutes the, the waterbeds. So, for example, that that those planetary boundaries are already nearly reached. It would have in in carbon footprint years. It would have taken five or six years to build working groups, get the equivalent of the GIEC on it. Uh, get a cop in place, uh, start talking about it. I don't know if you notice how quick um, financial financial institutions, investment funds, corporates, governments are aligning on on biodiversity, gathering knowledge very quickly. You have one or two leading NGOs that are pushing pretty strongly. IPBS that has already published everything that needed to be published on this. So. F- as we go, people are a little bit more reactive also. Do you think then the, the, to kind of flip the time question on its head, do you think because the time horizon for private ownership is shorter, if you have the right attitude, there is more of a sense of urgency. Whereas if you were holding stuff for 30 years, there might be a tendency to say, okay, we know that's a problem, but we'll deal with it in five years when we've sorted out all this stuff that's maybe more urgent. But if you only have five years and you have the right people to drive it, is that, does that kind of accelerate the urgency of? What you're it, it, it really it, it depends on something I said earlier. It's 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 which is an intangible, 
and hard to you know to put your finger on, but it really depends on the culture of the company. Because there's nothing worse than being in a hurry and being stuck in traffic. Okay, and uh, and this is exactly how I know I've felt sometimes over the last ten years. Uh, I know I said that's how everybody on this job has felt sometimes. And it's because it's not because there's not enough money. God knows there's enough money in private equity. I <laughs> like and made probably too much of it. Um, it's not because you know LPs are. It's not because you don't have deals out there. You'll overpay some deals. Like for example, today, if you're going to be investing in um, plant-based product, so for example, and if you look at the valuation of, for example, Impossible Foods or um, Beyond Meat, etc., it's a bubble. So it's not like there are no deals out there. You're probably going to overpay them, mm-hmm. but there are some opportunities. The problem is culture. Just really do you, the small people. I'm not the smartest people in the company by far from that. There's probably like, you know, 80% of, uh, of my colleagues are way, 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 way smarter than me. Know the data, know the financials could literally build the company up from the ground or tear it down if they wanted to and really the most important thing I have to ask myself every day is, do they understand the urgency? Do they understand the risk? I need to also probably say, do they understand that they will sell this better if there is an ESG story? So it's a little cynical, but that's how you need to think also. And do they, and sometimes, honestly, just, you know, recognizing that um, this is a job, okay? So you don't, you're not good at everything you're doing on this job. And typically I have my regrets, my, you know, my professional regrets also tools that I, I shouldn't have lost so, so much time on, for example, building a materiality map. Um, and sent, because at the end of the day, what was the so what of this magnificent model that took a month to build was not obvious. I probably should have scrapped the reporting framework much quicker and made it leaner. I probably should have, you know, connected sooner with, uh, financial team to you know merge together financial data and non-financial data so there's just it's also a question of how well are you doing your your job you know so connecting with your peers in other funds and staying very alert on who's the leader how why is he the leader how is he doing it and i know i've had conversation and those are my micro haha moments but i've had conversations with peers where i was so angry and frustrated when I hung up the phone and at myself, because I'm so competitive about doing this well. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I was just, you know, if you stay competitive, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the secret. Yeah. I guess, and I guess a big part of that is the communication with all, I mean, yeah, you've got the culture, but if you can't talk to that culture, whatever the culture is, you're not going to have impacts. But how does that work then going the other way to your investors and the LP base? How, so obviously we all know there has been a change in investor attitude clearly, but what, how, what has that actually felt like from, from the inside? How much have you had to force that and how much of that has come? Well, it, it, it feels like an email I just re- received today as I'm, you know, leaving next week of, of uh, an LP though I'm, I'm literally leaving next week, still requesting an hour conversation about integration of ESG processing and we know each other well. And and <clears throat> it really feels like you have a, a P environment is a tough environment, okay? So you're going to be working with people who don't take no for an answer. That's not always easy. And it's super, I would say the biggest challenge is to maintain a balance because if you're passionate about your job and you have people who don't take no for an answer and if you're good at your job, it's going to start to get very difficult. It's going to be difficult to leave your office at seven uh, or not work on weekends. And, 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 and recently I've had this kind of contend, I had to contend with a second group of people that I couldn't say no to because they were my clients. 
as the LPs. And what they want is, and I'll just give you a basic data point. You know, when I arrived at PI, we had, say, 10 questionnaires, Word documents, DD. DDQ, so due diligence questionnaire style documents, so very, so basically copy paste of the UNPRI questionnaire or ILPA. Pretty basic, very focused on governance. Today I'm getting, as we're fundraising, I'm getting uh, 35 questionnaires. Some of them have uh, our Excel files with seven tabs uh, and uh, requesting uh, t- CO2 reduction targets and, you know, um, biodiversity initiative for each company. It's, it's, it's gone completely the other way. I think what we're missing when we're over report, what's happened when you have too much to report on is audit fatigue and reporting fatigue. Yeah. yeah. It's, I don't have enough time to work with my portfolio companies. And that's something I've keep, I've, I just keep flagging. One thing that's is also really important is LPs, but that's something I've seen with certain LPs is they have, they don't have more, they don't have as much budget and like money to invest, obviously. Um, it's not the same business model as P as that. So they're not going to, you know, put 20K to test on the due diligence or to test an advisor, but they often have big teams. They have a team of five, 10, six, et cetera. And, um, I think that's very important because there's a lack of cooperation today and trust and transparency between GP and LPs. That's very damaging. Because on one side you have, I don't, I have, I have, you know, I have a good budget. I definitely have a good budget. I can try startups and and AI, techy little things to measure carbon footprint in five seconds. But I, I have a very, I'm short, I'm strained, I'm constantly strained on resource. Whereas those guys have ten people in their team scoring risk and scoring GPs all day long, but they're not. Yeah, so we could collaborate better, probably. And that's just, and, and, I, and I have this collaboration with a few LPs, but that's trust-based. Something you can't replace is, you know, meeting an LP in person and, say, and really saying, listen, no, we don't have a DNI task force yet. Okay. And that was like two years ago. We, I get it. Please. Yes. Please, please write it, write up a scorecard with a very bad red minus one grade so that I can send it upwards and yeah. create a sense of urgency. But please don't send me a 200 question long questionnaire on diversity and inclusion. Yeah. That's, um, it's a tough balance to strike. Yeah. That reminds me of the kind of, um, the same thing in the scientific community where researchers are having to write and spend hours and hours and hours writing grants for all the research they want to do that they actually never get to do the research and it's kind of self-defeating, right? So yeah, there's definitely a lot, a long way to go with questionnaires in lots of different industries there is there is one trend i do want to i do want to flag and, and and that's you 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 guys both used the word scoring a few times and <clears throat> it's very important to understand that the the industry is changing as like from the from when i joined there were no the only scoring you would have would be yours so it would be self-assessment or lp assessment and it was you know based on self-assessment basically based on self-declaration the the, the corporate trend of scoring so, you know, um, debt rating, loan rating, um, MSCI system analytics, VGO, um, international frameworks of reporting. This is coming to P, definitely. And this is going to be a very, uh, very important um, trend in the coming years because that, that's going to definitely scare um, the, um, not necessarily the investment teams, but the management committees, the advisory boards <laughs> and the investor relations team. 
Are you worried about that transition at all? Because I know that within the listed equities space, there's lots of murmurings on the validity of scoring, the fact that there's far too much scoring um, and kind of what you've alluded to with this like drowning in data on the P side, but also drowning in scoring that's not useful. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the only problem with, uh, with you know, meshing ESG in business is that some people see good business in it mm. and are going to, you know, create the, um, so you can see, for example, there's a, the real far west right now are, you know, carbon footprint startups, <clears throat> carbon footprinting startups, satellite imagery, climate risk <clears throat> startups or, or consultancies. And the same thing is going to happen with ratings. But I, I, it is going to be a strong trend. I think it's going to be a blazing fire. It's going to be stressful. But but it's inevitable that it's really inevitable that um, with the ISSB announcements at COP26, we're going, we're, we're, we're walking. I, I wish we were running, but unfortunately, we're just walking towards um, the standardization of frameworks, building data lakes. That's just inevitable. We'll have those data lakes within one or two years, finally. So super powerful um, data mining uh, uh, opportunities. So you'll be able to benchmark uh, galore. Uh, you'll be able to you'll be able to finally <clears throat> compare, uh, establish a correlation between financial performance for non-listed companies and the strength of their and, and ESG performance. And all of that is going to happen in two three years. But till then, a few more people are going to try to cash in. Yeah, and that's annoying, but you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, if you, if you have a choice, don't use them. But you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of you've kind of sprinkled some trend um, suggestions our way over the course of the last hour almost. But if you could give us three top trends that you think that we're going to see within PE mm-hmm. in the next year, what do you think that they would be? Well, definitely biodiversity. That, that's going to be the next, uh, the new climate, new climate carbon footprint, that's for sure. Mm, I think just transition is huge. I think that, that's what we should all really, really be caring about. And that's coming from somebody, as I said, you know, I'm passionate about social inequalities. Um, and I think that, I think that, you know, you can, uh, you can, and I, I, I lived in Paris for the Gilets Jaunes. So that's 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 another aha moment, huh? If you think you're gonna, <laughs> if you think you're gonna electrify all the cars, go 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 go. Uh, you, know, you, you could walk on the Champs Elysees uh, during those Saturdays, and you could see that it's not gonna happen anytime soon. For very and not because those guys are bad people, but generally because they've been asked to spend the entire savings on diesel engines <laughs> 20 years ago and on individual housing, and now they were telling them, no, sorry. Sorry, man, you know, you have to move to electric and your house is not isolated enough. So you're going to be paying extra tax on that. And that's not acceptable. So I think just transition is a, is a big one. And I would say the third one is um, you know, data, you know, uniform. I know I'm obsessed with data. I should have it tattooed somewhere, but really it's, it's like the uniformization of data. Uh, how quickly are we going to uniformize uh, or standardize, sorry, uh, st- uh, frameworks? How quickly are we going to all be speaking the same language? How quickly are we going to have access to those data lakes? 
and you know you can everybody's going to use his own system you know tell i mean microsoft has just you know released a freemium so on um the carbon footprint of data centers so everybody's going to come up with his own solutions but if we could all speak the same language when reporting to lps <clears throat> when corporates report to markets or private equity that would save a lot of time so we can focus on energy efficiency actual mental health at work and all those kind of underdogs you know yeah yeah i hope that does save a lot of time so then maybe i wanted to ask you quickly about biodiversity and i know it's obviously super nascent and there's not really some very tangible examples of how to attach value or how to attach risk to it but given also the fact that we actually don't really understand biodiversity as a science and the extent of biodiversity in our world anyway right that's probably a big part of the problem but how is the industry starting to think about it and yeah how do you how do you start to think about quantifying something like biodiversity and well I think one one thing that is really really important is that there is there it, there is through diff, some tools have been created that allow to already define the drivers the dependencies between the actors. So, for example, companies impact biodiversity in a negative way through um, pollution or noise pollution, uh, water pollution, and um, exploiting forests, uh, tourism, exploiting the land, um, fishing, overfishing, uh, um, putting back chemicals in nature, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, or extracting from the land, uh, um, and they're going to be doing so more and more. By the way, with uh, with <laughs> with with uh, the rush to green transition, and that creates erosion factors, and that that's really well known. That's completely analyzed and known today. You know, in the impact actually on the water, the seas, exploit the the climate change actually if you could say it's part of it pollution how it impacts species you can see that you know today we can see and that's really really thanks also to satellite imagery for example you can we can analyze to the kilometer and you can analyze the degradation of ecosystems there in the in a, and now you have missions everywhere you were mentioning scientific work there are there are, there are experts everywhere right now who can tell you exactly what's the level of acidity in oceans and how is that going to impact species? But what is interesting is that it will be interesting to also turn it upside down and say, well, you're in fact, you have, you know, in human activity generate erosion factors and they have impact on biodiversity. But biodiversity was actually a free revenue stream for you. There, as you know, you know, biodiversity renders service to the population. And uh, so, if, you know, if, honey, uh, if you're selling honey, you know that better than anybody else. Or if you're if you're if you're in charge of an eco lodge in Kenya, you also that, know that better than you, anybody else. So, so what it, what it means is that we know that this is being measured. What probably needs to be better known is the is the services that biodiversity renders to your company, and really measure at your company level your impacts on biodiversity, direct and indirect, on each you know with, from each erosion factors. Monitor also the dependency that you have towards biodiversity. And then at your scale, for example, your, for example, um, food produce, once you've mapped the opportunities and the risks at your scale, contribute to, um, yeah, contribute to, for example, through, um, and, and that, that's where, uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pretend I know when I don't know how what are the exact steps and what are the exact commitments that you can take science-based uh, targets for nature or financing um, an initiative to reinstate 
and the endangered species on the ground, cleaning the oceans, investing in ocean cleaning. There are probably a million ways to impact, to have a positive impact. Um, 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 I think we're some, 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 I'd love to hear actual experts on this. And I'm very much a citizen on that topic. I'm just observing and, and, uh, and yet to see how, uh, what's the role of private equity and finance in that. And just maybe to, to provide listeners with a bit of background or at least a bit of reassurance. The finance, at least, finance definitely has started thinking about it and it's been going on now for one or two years. So typically in France now, you have a working group that's been launched two months ago within the ESG Commission of France Invest. It's going to be, that's already working extremely fast. They're going to publish um, a guide for finance on biodiversity on how can a private equity firm measure its impact and how can they act? What act, typical action plans can you put in place? And I know that, for example, the sustainable, <clears throat> I would refer you also to the Sustainable Markets Initiative, They've created a year ago a working group called PESMIT, Private Equity Task Force. So Private Equity Sustainable Market Initiative Task Force. And there's a working group on biodiversity um, that is also moving extremely fast on this topic, um, kind of going through all the resources that already exist, IPBS, um, um, <clears throat> SBTN, um, reports from, for example, in France, the, the BCI and the um, CDC are extremely active, uh, identifying advisors or specialized advisors. And my understanding is we've started working, and in my case, working with one portfolio company specifically on biodiversity. So they're so advanced that they're skipping SBTI and carbon neutrality. And they're going directly to biodiversity impacts. And the real challenge is to identify, is to choose the the indicator, the, the, so that you have different indicators that you can use to measure your impact of your crop on biodiversity. And that is, I have to say, having sat through long, long uh, meetings, it's extremely scientific, actually. Um, it requires a lot of expertise. It's quite complex. So uh, hopefully it will be vulgarized uh, quite soon for people like me to take action. Yeah. Well, yeah, I hope that, yeah, that does come to bear fruit quickly. And how, I mean, that those are all kind of external um, things that are, or external um, groups that are doing this work. How much are, how much of this thinking is actually going on in house in private firms, or is it kind of a waiting game to see what these big uh, ones are? I, I do believe, I, I know, for example, if you look at the, uh, <clears throat> at the members of the working groups I mentioned, there definitely are, you know, already putting things in place. Yeah. I can just give you an example, like an advanced private equity on ESG, like PAI, like my firm, as I can safely uh, say that we are pretty, pretty advanced. Um, we've, we've tackled, we haven't, you know, we have, we haven't tackled biodiversity like we tackled carbon footprint. Like everybody answer questions that you don't understand and provide garbage data that we'll never use. You know, let's like, it's typically a mistake we won't do again. We've been really, really drilling down with this one company. With the head of CSR is a huge expert on biodiversity, and we're just kind of <clears throat> processing uh, expertise. Um, we carried out a pilot on four crops uh, because it's a, a, a company that's uh, producing uh, plant-based food, actually. And we looked at the impact of crops, and it's very interesting because the, the impact of organic crop is not the same as the impact of a conventional uh, crop on, on the on the land. 
it depends on where you are. It depends on the time of year. It depends on so many things. And also you have to take into account the production of, uh, of the crop later in the manufacturing processes. So all in all, there are, you know, for typically it's, it's actually quite easy for them because what they can do is, for example, produce differently, oat, and they will reduce their impact on biodiversity. It's not the same thing for a business service company. So I'm, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, to that, I'll say, I hope you are going to organize a podcast with somebody who knows a lot more than me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah, a good call to do so. And I hope, yeah, I hope that all of this does come to bear fruit, especially in the lead up to um, the COP convention on biological diversity this year. I hope that that kind of brings this discussion to a, a lot more of a fore in the same way that kind of emissions reductions targets have, because it's yeah, an extremely, extremely important issue. So, yeah, I guess to then sum up and bring this to a close, I was wondering if you could give us some words of wisdom whilst we have you um, held captive almost. Um, yeah, what would you do in our position? Uh, I'd love to be in your, in your position <laughs> because uh, really the, no, I think the, the ESG world is, is your oyster now compared to uh, when I started where it was really um, <laughs> um Seemed the, sh- the shore seemed really far away. Let's put it like that. Uh, but I think too much choice is actually also quite can produce a lot of anxiety. So I can I can imagine that it's, it's not it's also not easy. I think what I would do is what I would do is really consider who you are, who you are, your strengths, your preferences. So what would you be happy working? a lot on and and I mean a lot I mean in the first years of your career I think it's boot camp that's my view <clears throat> not everybody would agree with me but if you want to succeed in this industry you have to treat it as boot camp a lot of work late nights reading uh, attending conferences listening to podcasts on your on your way to work so you want to be working on a topic or a sector or in a, that suits you and just appeals to you for example I always have been fa- passionate about agriculture, um, agronomy, consumer goods. I just love food. Um, so it just made, I, I just had so much more fun uh, visiting uh, shrimp factories in Thailand or, you know, canning pineapple in a can pineapple in Thailand than I had, you know, visiting a, a machine, a washing machine tumbler factory in China. And, and the same apply should apply to you. You know, if you're extremely sensitive to, climate, environment versus social, or if you're extremely sensitive to regulation compliance, there's room for everyone out there. Um, but it's it's worth really choosing the, the sector or the topic that you're interested in. I think it's very, very important to due diligence your first choices. Don't sell yourself short. You're, you come out on an excellent master's uh, degree. Uh, you all have prior experience. You obviously all have you know original, uh, strong, determined characters. So it really doesn't make any sense because, you know, because you're afraid, because it's COVID, because, you know, you're afraid of, you know, not finding something, selling yourself short, joining a company that is not true to your calling or doesn't do or is not honest about their ambition. And um, I would say uh, the last thing is really, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's really uh, just remember because it looks like it's a, such a daunting, um, such a daunting decision today. But you'll find yourself again at the at a crossroads within four or five years, and you will just have progressed, learn, you will just be another person, and you'll have to make another choice. So don't I think you know it's 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 you're just building a journey here. It's your ESG journey, your sustainability journey. So as long as you 
do what feels right, you're in the right place. Um, it's, it's, you know, we talked about trends. Um, we talked about ratings. We talked about, you know, there's so many actors out there today. I think it's important. One last advice I'd give is to keep your mate, keep your network live very, um, keep your network alive. You, you all, you will all spread out in different directions. For your time, it might be a game changer for you to organize, um, um, fireside chat between your CEO and an expert on biodiversity. And you'll look everywhere and you'll find out that this classmate of yours has become the, you know, the uh, uh, Einstein of biodiversity. And you'll call him up and he'll come because, you know, that's the way I do it today. And this is, no, I can't, there's no, there's no price tag on network. It's just, it's not enough. I, I can't stress this enough. You know, uh, I've met, I've been made by the people that I've met along the way, by the advice I've received by the good the relationship I've built and it's really um and this tightening the network is going to you know, help you go uh, th through the toughest uh, yeah moment because there are you know obviously as a sustainability professional there are some uh, darker uh, <laughs> phases or tunnels so yeah yeah I definitely think there will be some dark places, but thank you very much for, you've been very generous with your time. Um, yeah, I think we've both really enjoyed speaking to you. So, um, and learned a lot. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak to you. The next generation. I hope you'll come on my podcast in, in 10 years when I'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please do.